Yes, 4th of July. Would you open your Bibles this morning, please, to the Gospel of Matthew? We're making our way through this book slowly, but we're certainly getting there. Uh, We're in chapter 22 this Sunday, and uh, actually starting at verse 23 of chapter 22. And so let's begin by just reading these next 10 verses, verses 23 through 33. So would you follow along as uh, I read for us, starting at Matthew 22, 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? And Jesus replied, You were in error, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. At the risk of sounding morbid on a 4th of July holiday, I have to tell you that I I find myself uh, thinking more about life after death than I used to. Partly, I suspect that's because I'm getting older, but partly it has something to do with the cumulative experiences I've had as a, as a pastor. Uh, one of the earliest of these happened as I was thinking about this message. Now, this one comes back to mind every so often. Uh, when I was in my 30s, it was my very first funeral. And it actually didn't start off as a funeral. It actually started off as a marriage counseling time. I'm going to change the name of the couple. I'm going to call them uh, Tom and Mary. But I was meeting with Tom and Mary for a typical six-week kind of course of pre-marriage counseling. And they were brand-new Christians. They had just come to know Jesus as their Savior. And they were the only believers on either side in their family. So neither on his side nor on her side. So they wanted to make this a very special kind of service. They wanted to make it a testimony service. And so we were working hard. It was just one of those really delightful times you have as a pastor when you're planning... uh, Uh, a marriage ceremony or a ceremony of any kind. Well, during that six-week period, one night uh, Mary uh, and Tom went out for a date. Uh, And uh, after the date, uh, Tom dropped Mary off at her home. Uh, He drove home. He was hungry, you know, typical guy, and he raided the refrigerator, and then he jumped into bed. Tom never woke up. During the middle of the night, whatever it was he ate, choked him. He aspirated somehow, and it came out of his where it belonged and went to where it didn't belong. And uh, that night, he died. And so rather than doing a wedding for Tom and Mary, I found myself doing a funeral. The very first funeral I had ever done. Now, do you ever wonder what pastors are thinking at funerals, especially one like that? Well, not always do I think this way, but on that particular occasion, I had two thoughts. 
the first thought that came to me as I watched her grief and as I saw the family and as I just saw all just this tragedy. It was just a tragedy. This death, this death thing, it's real. And you know what? It can happen to anyone at any time. That was one of the thoughts that was running through my mind. And the other one is, this may sound strange for you to say this as a pastor, but it really came clear to me at that point that if our Christianity doesn't work at the graveside, at a funeral, when we die, then our Christianity doesn't work, period. Well, uh, with those things in mind, uh, over the course of a lifetime, I've had some observations about other deaths and home goings to be with the Lord and some pleasant and some not so pleasant and some conclusions from studying scriptures that I've come to over the years and so I thought maybe this would be a good passage to use to share those with you this morning and so let's do that. Um, I want to start by just talking about uh, some possible views when it comes to life after death. And when I say possible, I mean possible in the sense that people actually believe some of these things today and they build their lives around them. And when I look at possibilities, when I look at uh, this, this life after death thing, there really are only three or four basic options. Now, there are little subcategories under them, but there really are only three or four basic options that people tend to gravitate toward. One is uh, what uh, people call reincarnation. You know, that's the view that the soul or whatever, some spirit thing or some essential thing, not everybody believes it's a, a soul, but something essential migrates from body to body on some sort of an upward path, uh, some kind of an upward journey to immortality, however that might be defined. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I first came across a westernized, westernized version of this. Uh, we were asked to read in one of my college courses a book uh, named Siddhartha by uh, the German author Hermann Hesse. And uh, Siddhartha is a story uh, of, uh, of a man who goes on this, uh, in this case, a Buddhist journey. And he had a close friend, and his name was Govinda. Uh, as the journey proceeds through the book, toward the end of the book, Siddhartha achieves what we might call a sort of a nirvana. And Govinda then uh, is uh, checking this out. And so here's a quote from that book. It says that Govinda looked into the face of his friend Siddhartha and he saw faces in a thousand relationships. He saw a fish, he saw a child, he saw a murderer. He saw crocodiles, he saw elephants, he saw oxen, he saw birds. Each one of them was mortal, yet none of them really, really died. They, they only changed, were always reborn, continually had a new face. Well, see, that was, that's Siddhartha. That's what Siddhartha had done. He had migrated from, oh, say, he had, in one life he had been a fish, and another life a child, and in one of his lives a murderer. Uh, in one of his lives, he was a crocodile and an elephant. And, you know, you get the picture. And all these lives eventually, as he made his way through, they all sort of merged. And he never really died. He just kept moving and moving. A lot of people believe that today. A lot of people, this is their view of life after death. The book uh, continues on. It says that as Govinda kept looking into his friend's life, he finally saw the perfect one smile. 
In other words, Siddhartha had finally achieved this. Whatever it is you achieve, it was some form of happiness or eternity or immortality. Now, I've seen some books that attempt to link Jesus uh, to this view, Jesus and the Buddhists and Jesus and the Hindus and so on. But frankly, I've never been able to buy into it. When I study the New Testament, there's just no temptation uh, in the Bible toward this kind of a view. In the Bible, God is far too personal and people are far too important to God to be to, to lose identity. In fact, Jesus, who kept his identity and will continue to keep his identity for all eternity, as I understand the scripture, didn't refer to his God as the all or the almighty, or he referred to him as that most personable Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, Jesus just would never have bought into to this view, but it is a possibility out there, isn't it? Another possibility that people have is uh, that death and uh, life after death is a form of spiritual immortality. You know, the belief that the soul or whatever the essence is, that it lives forever, but that the body just dies. Uh, this is an old view. Uh, the ancient Greeks uh, had a pun for this. They, they, their pun uh, sounds like soma sima, which translated, the body is a tomb. Um, in one of Plato's books, uh, The Death of Socrates, uh, Credo asks Socrates, he says, how shall we bury you? Remember, Socrates was uh, given poison uh, because he, that was his punishment for leading the youth of Athens astray, and he was given poison. So Credo asks, Credo asks him, how shall we bury you? And Socrates replies, however you please, if you can catch me, and if I don't slip away. In other words, I'm this ghostly thing. I'll slip between. There's, you're not going to be able to. You're not going to be able to bury me. The real me is gone. The closest thing I think I've seen in our culture. Remember the old Snickers commercial where the people died and went to heaven, and they're standing on a cloud, and the one guy in the commercial turns to the next person and says, "Do we eat up here?" It's sort of that ethereal, you know, well, if I eat, am I going to sink through the cloud and am I going to end up on planet Earth? That's, that's a view that when you die, you just become spiritually immortal. Now, I have to tell you that there is a partial truth there, isn't there? The partial truth is that the Bible has two ways of referring to life after death. We're learning this in that class, in our ABF class, the, uh, the Doctrine of Heaven. Uh, and one of the ways of referring to life after death uh, occurs before the resurrection of the dead. Uh, some theologians have called this an intermediate state. And uh, the view uh, is that uh, the body actually falls asleep and the soul or the essence of our personality lives in conscious existence uh, before God in his presence. Now, to just give you a snapshot, there's this passage, there's this wonderful passage in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, now this comes from the tribulation period, but it's like one of those representative samples. Uh, if this is what happened to people in the tribulation period, don't just limit it to them. This is typically what happens to believers in Christ throughout all time. That's, that's sort of the picture. But it gives us this representative sample of what goes on uh, before the resurrection, when people die before the resurrection. So, John says, I saw under the altar, what's the word? Souls. So there is a, a, an ethereal, a, a, a non-bodily, a non-material something called souls. 
uh, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain. In other words, these are dead people. They've been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained in him. In other words, these are Christian dead people. So this is what happens to believers who die. They called out in a loud voice. Now you see that expression, they called out? Doesn't that signify to you that there is something there that is conscious, that is aware, that is rational? I mean, if you're not rational and aware and conscious, why in the world would you call out? Why would you pray? And their prayer is relatively intelligible. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you... Do you see the word you? They're in the presence of God. So, souls... Believing souls, conscious believing souls, conscious believing souls before the Lord, then each one of them was given a white robe. Now, it's really fascinating to me that life after death is never pictured as a naked, nude state. In fact, even when we see God the Father, I was just reading some sections in Daniel earlier this week, God the Father is dressed in white robes. The Ancient of Days appears in white robes robes. The angels who appeared at Jesus' throne weren't nude or naked. They wore white robes. And in this particular passage, it also says that those who have gone at home to be with the Lord before they receive a resurrection body have a robing of some sort. I don't know if I want to call that a full bodily existence. It certainly isn't the resurrection. But I do want to say that there's some kind of, a, 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 of an existence where there's a, well, how can we do better than the Bible? It's a white-robed existence. It's a visible, in some form, tangible existence before the Lord. And they were told to wait. There's some kind of time in heaven. They were told to wait a little longer. Now, theologians debate how time applies to God, but I must tell you that time will always apply to us. They were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were completed and killed had been completed. So, you know, those six expressions there give us kind of a summary of, of this middle state. So Plato and, and others didn't get it entirely wrong, unlike the, the, the uh, view of reincarnation. There is some truth in uh, this uh, second view, this spiritual immortality, it's an intermediate truth. There's going to be more to that. We're going to look at that in just a second. But that's a second possibility, and I think the Bible affirms a part of it. By the way, C.S. Lewis was reading this passage, and he called this the valley of the shadow of life. You've heard the expression, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. When people die and go home to be with the Lord before they re, the, re, receive their resurrection bodies, C.S. Lewis refers to that as the, the valley of the shadow of life. They're there, but they're not complete just yet. Uh, we'll talk about resurrection in a section, but a third uh, view is annihilation. Uh, that's the view that, uh, that both the body and the soul, if there is one, comes to a complete and final end when a person dies. Another book that uh, I've read in the past, uh, one of my favorite authors at one time, the existentialist Albert Camus, he says, it isn't only that I die, it isn't only that man with a capital M dies, meaning everybody dies, 
but that the universe itself is not going to exist anymore. By the way, if you've watched that series on PBS, you know, either Nova or the universe, this is the recurring message, isn't it? Over and over and over and over. It's like they're trying to work themselves into a stupor and believing, well, you know what? It's all just going to wind down. Everybody dies. It's all going to, it's all going to come to nothing in the end anyhow. And I think, what a horrid little view that is. What a horrid little view. The interesting thing is, this last view, this annihilation view, seems to be what the Sadducees believed in Jesus' day. You see it there in verse 22, verse 23. It says, That same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus. Holly and I have been talking in some of our walks this week, and I'll use this, I'll give you this pun. They didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Okay. Well, so because this is a quasi-biblical view, at least by a group of people like the Sadducees, I think we need to take a closer look at it. So that brings me to the second set of observations, some Old Testament scattered clues that are, that are shed throughout. And I'm going to start at the, at the ugly part, okay? So let's just walk our way through some passages of Scripture. And this first one is from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think it states the problem just about as well as the problem could ever be stated. I mean, it just puts it right out there. Now you remember that the book of Ecclesiastes is writing from a certain perspective. The preacher, he calls himself. The preacher, after trying the way of wisdom, earthly wisdom, after trying the way of pleasure, I mean, he just went out for all the good time that he could have. After trying foolishness, he went to every comedy club that there was. And, and even after trying work, I mean, he just built magnificent things and he accomplished many. After trying all those things, what he learned under the sun, under the sun is a key phrase there, meaning without God's word, without the revelation that we have from Scripture. Under the sun, the conclusion that he arrived at is, and here it is, man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. And who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. I mean, under the sun, without a word from God, without revelation, who knows? And the answer is, nobody does. Without God speaking, who would know? Under the sun, this is a perfectly legitimate conclusion. Without the Bible, this is a perfectly legitimate conclusion. But we do have the Bible. And so let me just share with you a couple of more scriptures. There's this verse, for example, in the book of Job. Now, we don't know when Job was written, but we think we know that Job lived during the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, during the patriarchal period. So this is a very early testimony that comes from the Bible. And, and there are those, you know, Job went through this tremendous suffering, and there are these three cycles where he had these, he calls them miserable comforters. They were the counselors that offered no real help. They all wanted just to accuse him of doing something bad, that he deserved what he had gotten. Job wasn't satisfied with that answer, and so he, every now and then he breaks into a little bit of light through this book of Job. And this is one of those really remarkable breakthrough points. In chapter 19 of Job, he's about two-thirds of the way through the book, he says, I know 
that my Redeemer lives. Some of you recognize that's from the book of Ruth. That's the kinsman Redeemer idea. I know that my Rescuer lives. I know that the person that can get me out of this problem lives. I know that my kinsman Redeemer lives. Now this is really interesting. And that in the end, hmm, He will stand on the earth. That could be a wonderful messianic prophecy. That could be saying that the Redeemer is alive. Job knew this back in the time of the patriarchs. And that he knows that at some time this Redeemer is going to walk upon the planet. And oh, by the way, Jesus did. And not only that, he's going to return to the planet and establish the kingdom. And oh, by the way, he will. That could be a marvelous breakthrough way back in the patriarchal periods. And then he says, after my skin has been destroyed. Remember, he's scraping the sores on his flesh. He's scraping with shards because uh, they just are dripping. And, and it's just a horrible... He says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Now, that little word in that you see up there, that little preposition, that's a difficult word. It's one of those words that has multiple meanings, multiple valences to it. it surprising as it sounds, it can be either translated in or out of. If we translate it like the NIV translated, in my flesh, then it's a testimony to a future resurrection. And so he would be saying, I know my Redeemer is coming, and even after my skin has been destroyed, in my flesh, in a future resurrection, I will see God. I'm going to see Him. I'm going to see Him with my own eyes. I'm going to see Him and nobody else. Not meaning that nobody else will see Him, but I'm not going to be such a different person. I won't lose my identity like the reincarnationists tend to believe. I won't be absorbed in an all. I won't turn into nothing. I will see Him. That's one possible way and probably the, the right way. But it could also mean... In could also, this is, I know it's strange, could mean out of my flesh. And if that's the case, what he's saying is that after my skin has been destroyed, out of my flesh, that is in that intermediate state that we were just talking about, in my spiritual existence state before the resurrection, immediately I'll go to heaven and I'll see God and I'll see Him with my own eyes and I'll not see another. Now that's a possibility, not a likely possibility. But he could be referring to one or the other. Most of us take that to refer to a resurrection passage. Do you see that there? Uh, another passage, uh, Psalm 16, uh, that talks about uh, life after death. Uh, this passage starts in a fascinating way. I didn't give you the verse the way it starts, but verse 8 says, I've set the Lord always before me. So this is a believer's testimony. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And it's interesting because I'm going to note the different the, the change from the he to the you. I used to do some traveling for the uh, uh, for the free church, and uh, when I did traveling, uh, uh, our children, you know, and even Holly, sometimes, you know, Dad's gone. When he gets home, when Dad gets home. It's a it's a separation word, isn't it? When he's here, he'll fix that. When he's here, he'll do that. When dad gets home, he'll be here. That's the way verse 8 translates it. But I want you to notice this reference. It says, my body will rescue secure because you will not abandon me. And so it was like when I walked through the door, got home, my uh, Holly didn't say to me, he's home. She said to me, sweetie. You're home. 
And I'd get a big hug. That's, that's what this verse does. It changes from that he to that you. My body will rescue, will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. This, by the way, is used of the Lord Jesus when He's raised from the dead in the book of Acts. And so it applies first to Him, but then also to us. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures forevermore. Well, there you get sort of a sampling. I had some others I was going to show you, but I'm going to stop there for the sake of time. But I guess my point is, is that under the sun, without God's revelation, people don't know. They haven't a clue. And they're all just guessing what's going to happen to them. They're just thinking up these thoughts. But in the Old Testament, while I will grant you the revelation is limited, we have to wait for the coming of Jesus to get the full picture that God wants us to know. Because he only wants us to see the future in light of Jesus and along with him. So we get these little limited hints and pictures. But we do see hints. And we see hints of the soul's continued existence in the Old Testament. And we see hints of the resurrection of the dead. And some are a little stronger than hints, aren't they? So then that brings me to the third point in our conversation this morning. This is a really puzzling question. In light of this evidence, why in the world would the Sadducees deny it? Why didn't they believe these passages? And, and it's really interesting. The Sadducees had a form of theology. Now, you'll have cultists knock at your door and you'll have people come. And typically what they, they have is a system that they'll impose upon Scripture and they interpret the Bible through their system. Well, that's what the Sadducees were doing. And their system went something like this. The Sadducees only accepted what Moses clearly taught. In a way, they were the most conservative people in the Bible. We only believe it if it's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But if it's in Job or if it's in Psalms, well, we don't think that's the inspired Word of God. We only believe in five books of the Bible. If you can't show us from those five books in the Bible, we're not going to believe. It's a strange, strange theology, isn't it? But in that way, they were kind of overly conservative. And then they pulled this story out from, quote, Moses, this puzzle, that they thought was absolutely irrefutable. You saw it, this woman's married to seven different husbands. You know, the seven brides, seven daughters. Have you seen that little play? Well, this is one bride for seven brothers, okay? Uh, to give us a picture of contemporary. Do you know who Roger Williams is? Some of you heard the name Roger Williams? Roger Williams... Uh, was a uh, religious leader that lived in the 17th century. And he's actually known for a couple of things. He was the founder of Rhode Island because he was looking for religious freedom. And because he didn't like the setup uh, in the state that he was living, he moved off to establish Rhode Island to, to establish religious liberty. Well, uh, Williams died uh, in 1683, and he was buried in a poorly marked grave. They used to do this out in their backyard of his home. And then 200 years later, when people came to recognize uh, his contribution, and they wanted to exhume his body, and they wanted to give him uh, an honorable burial, well, they excavated Roger Williams' grave, but they didn't find a body. All they found were just some pieces left over of the coffin and a few uh, scraps of rusty nails that the coffin had been put together with. But they also found something else really interesting. There was this apple tree 
that had grown just right beside Roger Williams' grave. One of the roots from the apple tree had penetrated the casket of Roger Williams. Apparently it had penetrated right about the skull. It had traveled down his spinal column. Uh, It had uh, taken the shape of his arms and his leg and and his feet. It, It had actually absorbed Roger Williams. Uh, And so when they opened this grave, what they found was this apple tree, Roger Williams mix of a thing. And so, think with me here, the tree had eaten Roger Williams, and over the years, people had picked and eaten apples off of the tree. Where is the real Roger Williams? How in the world is a resurrection going to happen? Some of you may have ancestors that have eaten Roger Williams and he could be in your genes. <laughs> now, at the resurrection from the dead, how is God going to put all this together? Do you see the kind of puzzle? Do you see the kind of puzzles you can come up with? How is this resurrection thing going to work? And the Sadducees had concluded it's just crazy. It's nonsense. It cannot work. And so they believe that uh, uh, that the souls perish along with bodies and that the only form of survival is survival of our offspring. And if Messiah was uh, to be an expert in the law, surely he would know this thing. And how could you affirm both the law and resurrection? In other words, they were attacking Jesus at the very foundation. They were trying to destroy his witness. They were trying to get rid of everything he believed. They were saying, you know what? You cannot be the Messiah if you believe in both the law and resurrection. This was really a deadly attack that they were making on Jesus. Well, Jesus gives us three keys to solving the solution, to providing the solution for this. And that's in this next section of the passage. The first key has to do with the power of God. You see it there in verse 30? Jesus said, you are, or verse 29, Jesus replied and says, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, <laughs> Suppose somebody comes in and talks to our elder board or our pastoral staff and says something like that. You guys, you're, you're a mistake. You don't, you're not understanding the Bible right. And, and you don't really get it about the power of God. That's what Jesus had said to these leaders. These were the leaders of Israel. And Jesus just countered back to them. And so he starts with the power of God. And he says some really interesting things about that in verse 30. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. In other words, as a result of the power of God through resurrection, all relationships will be changed. People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Pharisees, you don't understand it. Your riddle just won't work. Your puzzle doesn't work. because Things are going to be transformed in ways you can't comprehend. That's a tough passage. I understand it's a tough passage. I love my wife. My my wife loves me. Sometimes. Most of the time, I hope. But loving couples, even though we're saddened by this teaching, uh, one pastor says, let's not read more into Jesus' words here than what he says. Will we know our husband and wife in heaven? He says, I'm sure we will. Since the Bible indicates that people are recognized and known in heaven. Will we love our spouse in heaven, he asks. I'm sure we will, he says, since this will be the place where love is preeminent. But it will be a different kind of love. 
In the resurrection, we'll become like the angels. In this way, we will no longer need to be married. Now, don't get me wrong, he says. There are things about marriage that will last forever. In fact, marriage points beyond itself to these eternal realities. To God, for example. God is a community of persons. He's talking about the Trinity. This community of persons ceaselessly gives themselves to one another in love. Marriage pictures that. That will last forever. Marriage is also a symbol of the love between God and His people. Christ and His church. Believers with one another. That will last forever. That will last. It won't go away. So there are things about, excuse me, so there are things about this life and about marriage that will last forever and things that will pass away. The resurrection will not just be more of the same, but a transformation, a launching into a new realm of life, a life of eternal love of God and of one another that would be more exciting than anything we can possibly imagine. And then he says, Nothing that you've ever experienced or dreamed or longed for in your marriage will be lost. Think of all of that as a starting point and then multiply from there. So relationships will be changed. Now, to get some picture of that change at the resurrection, not only relationships, but we're going to be changed like the angels in heaven. A couple of passages in the New Testament try to talk about this change. It's difficult to describe because the New Testament only gives us limited perspective, but one of them is in 1 Corinthians 15. But someone may ask, here's our question, how are the dead raised? I mean, one bride, seven husbands, Roger Williams' body, people that are cremated. How is this going to happen? How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come back with? And Paul says, how foolish. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's thinking of a seed now. He's thinking of a farmer's life. He's thinking of those seeds that you plant in your backyard, those little bulbs that you plant when you plant flowers. He says when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. He says, you know, there's going to be continuity The seed and the plant are all one thing, but they're still different, aren't they? So there's going to be continuity, there's going to be transformation, and all of this is going to be a result of God's action. He can do that. He can do that. Now the second part of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, So will be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. I'm going to teach you my poem when I was in high school, I used to have a sociology prof. He used to like to say, Beauty's only skin deep. Ugly is ugly to the bone. Beauty will fade away while ugly holds its own. <laughs> now, we can change that here, can't we? We can say, you know, this body is only skin deep. The body that comes will hold its own. This body will fade away. But that body will hold its own. The body that's sown is perishable, but it's going to be raised in an imperishable form. That's a part of what the New Testament tells us. It says it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. Now, I'm sorry, you people look so beautiful this morning and so nice, but you know, whether we like to admit it or not, the human body is a horrible mass of bad smells, burps, bulges, 
skin eruptions and all such like, isn't it? And we do this marvelous job of trying to cover it up. We bathe it, we perfume it, we make it up, but it refuses to change. That's the body that we currently have. But the body that we will get, it will be raised in glory. No more need for that constant tending to this body. And then he says it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Came across this. If a person could lift as much as an ant, he could lift two tons. If a person could jump as far as a flea, he could jump 600 feet. If a person could run as fast as a cheetah, he could run 70 miles an hour. If he could hold his breath for as long as a dolphin, he could stay under water for 20 to 30 minutes. As a matter of fact, in physical abilities, the human person is outmatched by almost every animal on earth. But in the kingdom, there's an indication that that's going to be different. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Don't know how to explain that. Don't know that the New Testament knew how to explain it. And so the Apostle John just simply said, What we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What he is, we will be. What he is, we will be. So they didn't understand the power of the God. They also didn't understand Scripture. And this is kind of a subtle point, but it's so basic. I was going to show you a passage from the Old Testament. I'm going to take time to do that. But just look at the passage here in verse 31. He says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now to say I am the God of somebody implies that they're still alive. It's not I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am their God, therefore they're alive. And Jesus just takes that simple, subtle statement and says, and doesn't that demonstrate to you that even Moses taught that they were still alive? He says, you don't understand the power of God and you don't understand the Scripture. And, you know, another reason for bringing all this to a head is that he says this was written to you. So why do we believe in this resurrection stuff? Well, it's Jesus versus the Sadducees. And isn't the final reason we believe in it? Because he said so. That's why I don't believe in reincarnation. Because he said so. That's why I don't believe in just a spiritual existence and no bodily existence. Because he said so. There are some things that Jesus says that if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we just believe them because he said so. Jesus versus the Pharisees. Oh, by the way, Jesus also happened to have raised a few dead people just before this conversation. Who would you choose to believe? The Sadducees who didn't believe it? Or Jesus who brought people back from the dead? Because he said so. Well, in conclusion, 
1989, George Gallup uh, reported that 71% of Americans believe in life after death and only 16% don't, and that these percentages haven't changed for nearly 50 years. And i got to say, in our ungutted moments, it seems to me like Woody Allen uh, was right when he uh, he was told that his achievements would make him immortal. Woody Allen said, the only immortality I'm interested in is the immortality of not dying. Me too. I don't care about my achievements. I don't care what I accomplish. The only immortality I'm really interested in is the immortality of not dying. And as a Christian, I can boldly and confidently affirm conscious, joyful existence in God's presence following death, absent from the body, Paul said, present with the Lord. And with Job, I can also proclaim, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. In spite of the objections, both ancient and modern, I can affirm these truths because of the power of God, because of the teaching of Scripture, and because He said so. And I'm glad. I'm glad because you see, this death thing is real and it can happen to anyone at any time. And if Christianity doesn't work here, it doesn't work, period. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage, for this remarkable passage. You were challenged and yet just so confidently and full of life and truth you provide the answer that satisfies the need of our soul. And so, Lord, would you just plant firmly into our hearts and minds the reality that this life belongs to you, that any intermediate life belongs to you, and that our future resurrection life belongs to you, that all life comes from you and belongs to you and can be affirmed because of you. And, Lord Jesus, we thank you for that in your name and for your glory. Amen. Sure. Oh, you you don't have one. (laughs) Gating here, sorry, back and forth. We do not have a closing song. So, I just will dismiss you then. And I will say, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Go and have a good day and have a good holiday week.